This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me this week from our Next Generation show, Earl Grey, is Daniel Prue. Daniel, how does it feel to step off that luxury cruiser, the 1701D, and, and join us here on our humble little NX-01 starship? You know, it's 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 a, like a blast from the past, but I don't have enough room to do my <laughs> yoga in my mirrored giant exercise room, so like... I'm a little uncomfortable, honestly. Yeah, it's a little bit cramped. You know, just watch your head. Be careful. You know, we have some pipes hanging a little bit low here. And, um, you know, if Porthos comes around, just give him a nibble of cheese and uh, he'll leave you alone. So is is Porthos a, a girl or a boy right now? Because I know on our ship, you know, animals tend to kind of shift between <laughs> which genders they are. Well, he he is a boy, Although he's being played by a girl, so it gets really confusing. Okay, okay. I can follow. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, Daniel, you are big on starships, I know, and I thought that it would be really interesting to have you on to talk about the NX program and how the Enterprise that we have here on our series on Star Trek Enterprise came to be, how it was developed, and by the time we get to the end of the discussion today, We'll talk a little bit about how it bridges the gap to your ship on your show, Earl Grey, the big old galaxy class, 1701D. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think that we'll probably end up starting really, really early on, maybe even maybe even with the Phoenix a little bit and uh, moving all the way up to, to the D, which is be really interesting because uh, it's it's it must have been a tremendous challenge, especially in the disjointed way that it happened for the designers to kind of find elements of the ships that that would make sense chronologically in universe even though right. it happened you know 20 years apart in the real world so exactly okay so you mentioned the phoenix why don't we just start there go back to the so the nx program itself of course is a construct of this television series which came way after star trek first contact came out but it's all built upon the events that happen in that next generation movie with the Phoenix. So when you saw first contact for the first time, I assume you saw it when it came out. I did. Of course. Absolutely. Okay, good. So when you saw it at that time, what were your first impressions of mankind venturing out into space and developing this warp drive? Um, That's an interesting question. You know, at first, obviously, it's kind of a boring, it's a boring design, but it's the moment when it reaches orbit and the sides break apart and the nacelles come out right. and you're like, okay, this is a Star Trek ship. This, now I'm excited. And it's like, it makes sense because obviously now we have you know, the shuttles and all of these other spaceships, they're the only spaceships we have now. That's kind of how they work where everything is compacted to leave orbit because it's very tremendously difficult to do. And then once they get out there, they can, they can, as it were, spread their wings and, and move right. forward. So then Enterprise came around and it was built on the whole premise of what happened in First Contact. I mean, the Warp 5 complex itself is right outside of Bozeman. And they even had the video. They had James Cromwell come in. They, had, um, they played his commencement speech, of course, from the dedication of the Warp 5 complex. As a TNG fan... 
how'd you feel about that? You know, reaching, I started to say reaching back, but in a way it's reaching, it's reaching forward and back, I guess, in Star Trek lore uh, to, to build the foundation for a new television show. Yeah, like it's it's a lot like with the ship design, like the, their decision to go back in time for Enterprise, I think made a lot of sense because there's a lot of un, uncovered ground in the Star Trek timeline, especially at the time, you know, before Enterprise had come out. And to use Zephram Cochran as kind of a bridge uh, between what we saw in in the TNG movie and the rest of Star Trek, essentially, because that's that link and and what we would get in the future Enterprise series made a lot of sense to me. So when he was when he showed up in uh, Broken Bow, I was like, all right, like I got excited about it because it's like we actually get to see the consequences of first contact um, to, to a degree. Unfortunately, I kind of would have been interested in the immediate consequences of first contact, which we this is another gray area in Star Trek. We don't we're not fully uh, made aware of yet. Hopefully, maybe in the well, you could tell me if it's in the books we have been, but um, but I do like that they used Zephram Cochran because he gets to become the man that Riker and Jordy and and uh, Barkley all tell him that he will be, you know, in the future. So it's very interesting. He becomes one of those astronauts <laughs> on some kind of Star Trek, <laughs> exactly. And he fi- he finally learns how to use uh, the proper restroom, you know, when he's got to go. So. Right, right, right. And he also learned to always know where your Steppenwolf disc is. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. Well, let's talk about the development of the, the engine a little bit, because it was great that they tied back to that. We get to see Zephram Cochran dedicating the Warp 5 complex. And here's what he said. On this site, a powerful engine will be built. An engine that will someday help us to travel a hundred times faster than we can today. Imagine it. Thousands of inhabited planets at our fingertips. And we'll be able to explore those strange new worlds. And seek out new life and new civilizations. This engine will let us go boldly where no man has gone before. So that was the dedication of the Warp 5 complex, and that was actually in 2119. So, you know, it's not really that long after first contact. Like you said, we don't really know what happened in between other than the Vulcans became pricks and (laughs) the humans got tired of them being around and humans did venture out into space. They had ships that could travel at Warp 2 and there was the Earth cargo service, which was really humans representation in space prior to the launch of the NX-01. And the the Warp 5 complex was set up. This is the interesting thing. When we get to the development of what we see in the episode First Flight, which is what a lot of our discussion today will be based on, we're seeing them actually taking the Warp 5 engine and, and marrying it to a ship design so they can really test it out. And uh, that NX program actually started in the early 2140s. But the dedication of this Warp 5 complex was 2119. So they were working on the Warp 5 engine here for a couple of decades before they were actually ready to mount it on some kind of ship and really do those test flights with it. Yeah, you know, see, this is the this is what I'm talking about before is this like this these giant gaps that we kind of miss. And um you know, obviously, first contact is in the 2060s, and then, like you're saying, we we were moving now into the the 22nd century, the early 22nd century, and we're getting all of these developments. And from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because warp warp scales are linear, I think, right? Or there, there's in some way like like uh, warp two is way faster than twice as fast as warp one. It's it, it, oh yeah, right. yeah, right, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, because to me, I'm like, oh my goodness, you've you've had this engine for 50 years, and you're only now achieving warp two or 80 years or however long it was, and uh, mm-hmm. but it makes sense because like, and that's why I think warp five, as they mention a few times in first flight, is such an important barrier. It's like because it's like this 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 theoretical limit. It's like, what can we get it? Can we can we achieve it? Like this is going to take a lot of work, and uh, so I, I do like that we we do get to see this major stepping stone. In the end, like in we get in first flight, they reach warp 2.5, I think it is. 
um, and then within 10 years we have the, the, right. the warp five engines. So, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 They get over to finally. And then eventually when they do the NX Delta flight, which we don't actually see, but they mention it, uh, they break the warp three barrier. And then that leads on to, it takes five more years after that. And then they begin construction on the NX-01, which is, of course, the first ship fitted with the Warp 5 engine. So so there is a, a progression there. But they did pick up speed. Like once they were able to break Warp 2 successfully, which we saw in the episode, they were able to move along. Uh, there, was a, there was another year of ground tests that the Vulcans insisted that they do. Then they went out and they broke the Warp 3 barrier in the NX-Delta test flight. And that was done by Commander Duvall. And that led us ultimately to the launch of the NX-01, which was launched in April 2151, five years after Duval broke the Warp 3 barrier. And uh, so that gives us another little idea of how long it took them to to go from Warp 3 to Warp 5. Yeah, it, like I said, it's interesting because from Warp yeah. 1 to Warp 2 is like 80 years or something. I don't, I don't remember because it was 2060 and then... 2140 or 2130 or something like that right um, so yeah roughly eight, eight, 80 years or so yeah so so and then within the 10 years which kind of makes it's it's kind of maybe a little i don't know if there was this intentional i doubt it but maybe like a bit of a parallel to like how technology's just constantly yeah. increasing faster and faster and faster nowadays right. and it's just uh it's a really it was probably in the in this fictional star trek world a really awesome time to be alive to see these crazy things uh, you know being accomplished that we never thought that we that we could do yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's how I think of it too. It's like technology where it took us so long. You know, you remember a time when computers were advancing, you know, 25 megahertz, then 33 megahertz, and then 60 megahertz. And and these days, of course, the megahertz themselves are not advancing very rapidly, but the, the power of the computers, that is advancing rapidly. And it's just as the technology gets more and more refined and then we see these just enormous advances and we can do things that we never thought we could do before let's talk a little bit about the earth cargo service and this doesn't really so much come from first flight this is the, the whole boomer idea this is the travis mayweather thing what i find interesting about it is how enterprise dropped in these little bitty things here that connect us to the original series so earth you know, I don't know exactly what we were sending out to people. Like maybe it was coffee. I don't know. What do we have that everybody wants so badly? But the the Earth Cargo Service was running trade between Dralax, the Tenebian Moons, Trillius Prime, the Vega Colony, the Deneva Colony, and also they traded with Demarians and Orions. And of course, we know from TOS and onward that the Orions are, are big traders. But uh, Vega Colony, we see in the cage, that's where Pike goes. That's where the whole thing happens with the, the uh, when they're, they're going to look for the Tolosians, actually. The, uh, the, um, the group they're looking for would have settled on Vega Colony. And then the Deneva Colony is what we see in Operation Annihilate. <laughs> where Kirk's brother was stationed. It was kind of like an asteroid mining facility uh, near there. And then Trillius Prime, according to star charts anyway, is another name for Trill. And that makes sense because we do, like in Trials and Tribulations, we know that Trill were on Earth at least in the 23rd century because that's how Dax knows Dr. McCoy. Oh, yeah, that's right. And how great his hands are. Um, so there's some some interesting connections there. Also, these Tenebian moons are interesting because in the original script for Broken Bow, these were going to be moons of Andoria. But since the writers wanted to introduce the Andorians as the series went along, they changed those to be Tenebian moons. And those are 90 light years away from Earth. And Archer, in two days and two nights, Archer says that Earth the humans have only traveled 90 light years away from Earth prior to the launch of the Enterprise. So the, these Tenebian moons give us an idea of the extent of how far we could go with those Warp 2 engines on all those cargo ships. You know, um, it's, I agree. It's like really fascinating that they made all of these 
these original series connections and stuff. The one problem I had, you know, as I was thinking about this episode and um, especially as you mentioned, like this, the cargo services is I can understand that maybe the Vulcans kind of have a version of the prime directive where they're not allowed to give us super advancements in technology. But if we're dealing with people that are shady, uh, like the Orions or, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like right, right. any of these other species, why is it that we can't just buy their technology or a ship and we would instantly be transported into like where we have active trading presumably we have active trading relations with these people and it would seem like a lot of our technology would have jumped way way forward really really quickly you know we wouldn't have to develop yeah. uh, warp three or warp five from the ground up we could just be like oh look at this look at this engine this is exactly how you do it and then we could just modify right. it or whatever well, Daniel, the reason we couldn't just buy it is because we are humans. <laughs> we are not Ferengi. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's why. But I did have to. I did make note of the fact that um, in first flight, um, there are multiple references made to selling and buying drinks for people. So th yeah. this is pre the destruction of currency on Earth. When that happens, we don't know how it how it's possible. Who knows? But uh, this is obviously before that happens. Yeah, I, I'm still not buying that whole "there's no money on Earth in the future" argument myself. I I don't know. I know Picard told Lily that, <laughs> but you know, I think that maybe within the framework of Starfleet, yeah, these guys aren't paid. Maybe, but. I don't know. I just cannot imagine there being being no money. And, uh, you know, Cisco's dad has a restaurant in New Orleans. What does he do? Just people give him ingredients. He makes food <laughs> and he gives it away to people. <laughs> what is that about? Uh, yeah, I mean, to, but to be fair, in the society that Star Trek exists in, there's no reason right. to go to a restaurant anyways, except for the social oh, experience. True. So it's like, I, I mean, I, I understand the difficulties of thinking of a, of a currency-less future um, yeah. I definitely think it's a, a utopian way of looking at things and yeah. like, uh, uh, but, um, and maybe it doesn't make sense, uh, but I, I, I appreciate it that it's so optimistic and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's so, it's super socialist obviously, but it's so <sighs> pie in the sky. It's so unachievable. Yeah. It seems to us. Well, sure. I, I, I appreciate it too, because, you know, if, if we were doing Trek FM in the 23rd century, we could just podcast all day. We wouldn't have to worry about anything. Money would be no object. And yeah, so right. I like the idea as well. <laughs> we would be like the 24-hour uh, news networks. You know what I'm saying? It, we would just be constantly on the air. Maybe. Although we have too many different shows and too many different topics for that. We would need to just pick one topic and then analyze the hell out of it <laughs> round the clock. <laughs> Oh boy! So like, what you're saying is like we would be like the CNN, uh, right? Uh, you know, like, well, I won't, I won't get into topical subjects, but um, you know, where they're just constantly like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? What's going? On? Yeah, I can, I can, I can follow that. Well, I, I did find it interesting that CNN actually did do a panel discussion about the missing Malaysian airline. Was it swallowed by a black hole? <laughs> That's what I was talking about. Yeah. No, it was not swallowed by a black I, hole. But I, I understand that you know. You have air time to feel. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move. Let's go back to the Vulcans here because the the interesting thing is that how the Vulcans were involved. So so what, what we find out in terms of timeline for the NX-01 engine development is that the program began in the early 2140s. They developed several prototype vehicles and they fielded those. And they made some progress, but in 2144, things stalled out. A.G. Robinson did the test flight in the NX-Alpha. There was the explosion. He tried to go beyond warp two. And of course, the Vulcans jumped in and said, okay, hold it, hold it. No more. No more of this test flight stuff. We want you to just shelve this thing indefinitely. But of course, Archer wasn't going to have any of that. And, and the humans in general, they didn't want to do that. So Archer and Robinson, they stole the NX beta and uh, they conducted a successful test flight. And then the Vulcans kind of had to back off. But as I mentioned earlier, they insisted on having a year of these ground-based test flights and uh, or ground-based tests. Then finally, Commander Duval made the test flight in the NX Delta, broke the Warp 3 barrier, 
Five years later, as we mentioned, they they constructed the NX-01. They launched it in April 2151. But it does raise the question that you brought up as we were talking before the show of just who's in charge here, the humans or the Vulcans? You know, I, I was watching the episode and I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. Because presumably Starfleet does not represent the even if at this point we're at a one-world government, Starfleet is just an agency, like kind of right. like NASA, um, which we'll talk about yeah. later. Um, but but and and the the this, the most senior member of that agency that we see is Admiral or Commodore at this point, Commodore, Commodore Forrest, yeah. who I love. He's great. I love Forrest. He's awesome. So it's like uh, you know, and and it. <laughs> I was so underwhelmed with the scene where Archer is apparently mission commander all of a sudden because he's yeah. the rejected pilot for the mission. So now he gets to be bumped up to mission commander. And um, there's like four people in the room and two of them are scowling Vulcans. And the other guy is just looking at the map like, look what's going on. You know, and I'm like, why are there like not like important people around or even involved in any of this stuff? And I'm like, there's got to be somebody above the Vulcan diplomats. And right. And Commodore Forrest. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And and even if there's someone above Forrest within Starfleet, like you said, Starfleet at this point is an agency. I mean, they don't really represent Earth as a whole, like all the people of Earth. Starfleet is not the governing body of the planet Earth. And we actually talked about this here on Warp 5 a long time ago when we did a show about the Makos. And who's the governing body of the Makos? What's their relationship with Starfleet? You know, how did they get put onto the Enterprise for the Zindi mission? Because it does raise a lot of questions about who's really in charge here. At the same time, you know, the things that Starfleet's doing, or the Earth Space Probe Agency, I guess, <laughs> here, as we probably should properly call them, mm-hmm. um, it, it's they're doing things that are are monumental for the future of every person living on this planet. You know, they are, and this is what we see with the xenophobia later on in enterprise too, you know, where ordinary people in San Francisco and I'm sure all over the world are a little bit upset with the enterprise crew and with Starfleet for going out there and announcing our presence to everyone in the galaxy. And, uh, and, you know, they're not necessarily comfortable with this. So, yeah, and, and you know, I was thinking about it too, and like, we had the the great, you know, the space race of the '60s and the '70s, and the reason that it captured, well, part mostly, uh, the reason that it captured the public's attention was because it was essentially an element of the Cold War. You know, this is right. this is something that happened between the powers of the great powers of the world, and you know, people were just so so invested in it, and so I was assumed that the population of the Earth especially around the time of first contact and and definitely afterwards as well um would kind of have that same same feeling maybe a little bit different because instead of separating the planet it kind of brings everyone together um but it brings us in contact with a whole nother race of beings which obviously we don't have any experience with so who knows how people would react but i I was thinking like this has got to be i mean there's there's nothing else going on on earth or on the moon or on Mars, because at this point it's colonized, that, that people would not be paying more attention to. So this should be such a huge deal. And it's like, like I said, there's like six people in a room and that's it. And, you know, you can just go and steal the NX beta if you want. There's no security around or like the, the locker rooms are like literally in the hangar bay. So you just you just walk right over from your locker into the NX beta. And I'm like, come on now, this has got to be a big deal. This is a huge, a huge issue for humanity. Yeah, exactly. Now, we should remember that the population of the Earth has been diminished because of World War III. And, of course, First Contact is set in the aftermath of that. And you did have the Eastern Coalition, of course, which is frequently mentioned in the um, in First Contact. And and after that, I mean, there was the, the new United Nations, which was uh, founded... Uh, a little bit uh, well it was actually like the early years of world war 3 when that was founded and they they tried to to uh bring everyone else back together but you know we know from encounter at farpoint in the trials that that Q put everyone through that the the whole idea of a united earth 
was abolished as being nonsense. <laughs> and so it's then we hear like in in judgment here on Enterprise, they talk about how humanity eventually turned to a few courageous people, you know, a small group of people to to try to pull everyone out of it. And they had the meeting in San Francisco and that that was around uh, 2053. And then we go from there. So we don't really know, like, what is the governing body? And it does raise a question too for me, which I suppose this ties into Gene Roddenberry's vision that ultimately as humans, we're good. And in the future, we are going to work things out because in the, everything that's happened between, you know, leading up to first contact and leading up to what we see in first flight. And then when we finally get to the days of broken bow, it would be very easy for people to give in, I think, to a military dictatorship to govern them. And so it would have been very easy for Starfleet to become a military because it is a military at this point, especially it's a military organization. Um, at least that's how I see it. Uh, I know they want to go out and explore. And when they launch the NX-01, they are explorers. But culturally, which we're going to talk about in a minute, they feel very much like a military organization, like the Air Force, just a bit more advanced because we're dealing with space more now uh, than just the airspace of Earth. Yeah, and and one of the things that I think Star Trek did brilliantly, and I, I imagine it's mostly on accident just because of a happy uh, set of circumstances and, and continuity, is 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 this idea that World War Three devastated the whole planet, and um, we as humans reached a point where it was basically self destruction, or we had to change almost to the core our very nature, um, mm-hmm. and which is and the catalyst for that was meeting this enlightened race, um, the Vulcans, who of course we find out later in, in Enterprise is not so as enlightened as, as we <laughs> right. might have thought they were when they first stepped off the ship on that in that yeah. movie. But but it's certainly a race that is um even though they have their issues in Enterprise are still you know, they're they're noble people and a peaceful people generally or getting there. They're at least further ahead than us. Um and I, I think that was one of the, the really good strengths of what First Contact built into the universe is like this idea that we were at our lowest low, so we we had to we had to pick up uh, you know, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps right. or or we're done. You know, we're done as a species. Right. So, so we we made it through, and there were you know other groups along the way, and there there was the establishment of. And this comes from the next generation. This is from Attached. Uh, they they say that there was a united Earth government in 2150. So 2150, the NX-01 was launched in 2151. So it's interesting that on Enterprise, we they have this reference in the next generation to this united Earth government, but but yet we see events happening on Enterprise at the same time, but we're not given any clue as to the involvement of that governing body and what's going on or how they would deal with the Vulcans because they would have to be dealing with the Vulcans. Yeah. And, and, and again, this is my biggest problem, but I mean, in that, in, in, if you mention that specific reference, it doesn't bother me because I assume that there is a governing body that we're just not sure. told anything about it. And so right, like, right. that actually fits continuity wise, but I, it's a frustration yeah. because I'm like, this is a huge source of drama and conflict. Why would you not yeah. like, there could be a, a whole, you could do a whole season about Starfleet's interests versus the interests of the world government or you, yeah. like really interesting stuff that you could do. And we're not even given any, like not even a mention of like, you know, whatever the, the girl, the the world government would be called. Like, we don't know anything about it. It's really frustrating, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would have been interesting. You know, they wanted originally, uh, Rick and Brandon wanted the first season of Enterprise to be about building the ship on, you know, on Earth and the development of the ship and everything. And the first season really wouldn't have been set in space. We wouldn't have been going to Kronos in the first episode for sure. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I could see that and I could see, yeah, like a second or or intermixed with that actually in the first season, that story of the United Earth government and the, and how they interacted with the Vulcans and how that influenced the NX program and how the warp capability was developed. And then, and, and then at the end of that season, the ship is launched and 
there would have been a lot of interesting stuff there. I just don't know that that would have grabbed the attention of of the majority of Star Trek fans. You know, it's I'm just thinking about it, and it's like if we compare it to modern times, like Ambassador Saval is, you know as far as Vulcans on Earth, he's obviously the head honcho. Like it would be like him only interacting with the secretary general of the United States instead of the president. Mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense. Like there should be some level of interaction between him because he represents Vulcan who represents Earth. Like in Enterprise, it's always Admiral Forrest, but that makes no sense. He's, he's, he's not even technically, I would assume that there would be like a, I don't know, like a secretary general in charge of Starfleet. Like he's just an admiral. Like right. why is he representing all of the planet and all of the people on the planet? It's just, a, it's a big frustration, but. And we know he's not the only admiral, of course, because there's Admiral Gardner who takes over for Forrest overseeing the Enterprise's mission when Forrest is killed in the embassy bombing on Vulcan. So you know, it, yeah, it, it is kind of interesting. It's kind of, it can be frustrating, I guess, if, if you're really, really digging into the story. Well, let's talk about the parallels with NASA, because that's something else I find really interesting here. So Mike and Denise Okuda are big fans of the space program. And of course, they are very influential as designers over the look and feel of Enterprise and the Star Trek series before that as well. But, but Enterprise is where, like, I really see their love for the space program shine through and there are so many parallels between the development of the the warp 5 engine and the nx starship program and the culture that surrounds it as well and what we have seen of nasa particularly when you think of the right stuff you know when you think of of the glory days of nasa's manned spaceflight programs the charge to go to the moon uh, the all of these missions, especially through the the '60s in particular, I get that feel. Uh, what did you see when you when you look at Enterprise and you see those parallels? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I the same way that you did. I saw an uh, an expansion of NASA. I saw a, a natural evolution of what the NASA program does now. Um, obviously, it's supposed to be representative of all of of the planet, but. Um, like we, they went into the, what was it? The 306. I'm remembering the name wrong. The, bar. Oh, the 602 club. 602. Thank yeah. you. In, and, yeah. and there are literally, there are like pictures of, you know, Apollo 11 and, and yeah. all of these different yeah. NASA things. And you're like, you, you know, you get the sense definitely in the episode that, um, they, 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 um, feel like they're descendants of NASA that they, that, that, that right. they see that they're walking in those footsteps and, and I like that. It really connects Star Trek universe to us, which we don't get, especially like, you know, in the 24th century and beyond, like, um, which I, I think that this episode particularly, but even like you mentioned, um, like even the design of, of the NX Enterprise does really well, makes sense from a, from a current standpoint, but still moves us forward towards that goal. And, um, I, I like the NX and even like, cause the, like, I know you guys mentioned this um, a few weeks ago on this, on warp five here, but like the patches that they have, yeah. like the, yeah. the suits are kind of NASA esque in, in a way. Um, and so I, I, I really appreciated that for sure. The, the patches are, are fantastic. And I know Mike Okuda designed a lot of those patches for, especially for the episode first flight. But, you know, I always loved just on the Enterprise uniforms in general that they did have the big patch with the Enterprise. It's like a mission patch. And then when we get to see the Columbia later on in the series, they have their own mission patch, which is great because that's very NASA. You know, like every mission NASA flies, they've got a patch designed for that. And also the in first flight, we get to see not a mission patch, but we get to see the, the Starfleet patch, the space agency, space probe patch with the yellow delta mm -hmm. on the side of the uniform and also the uh, the spacesuits are interesting on the enterprise this is a season two episode right so the season two blu-rays there is a commentary with mike and denise and chris black for this episode first flight and uh, they they talk extensively about nasa connections visually what they were going for how they decorated the 602 club 
how they design those patches and the things that are commemorating in there as well. And, um, and did you know that A.G. Robinson in the episode, the commander, is uh, is an homage to Lost in Space, the I, Robinsons? I did not yeah. know that, but that, I mean, that totally makes sense, right? That's pretty cool. So so there are a lot of parallels here. And I also see things like in the designs, the, the NX, not the NX-01, but the NX-Alpha, NX-Beta, these ships that they're testing here, they look very similar in design, of course, to Zephram Cochrane's Phoenix and First Contact. You can see a progression there. They also look really, really similar to the X-15 research aircraft, the hypersonic research aircraft that NASA was using in the 19... Starting in 1959, they did test flights from 59 through 68 with these X-15 craft. And so many of the astronauts, uh, the pilots who went on space missions were in those as well. And apart from the coloring, because those ships were dark, they were black in a grayish color, and the nacelles sticking out of the side, you know, the core of those aircraft, they look so similar to the NX-Alpha and NX-Beta. Yeah, you know, I just, it, I really do feel like those, the Alpha and the Beta um, that we get to see in that episode are just mishmashes of the Phoenix and everything that we have or have had in the past as far as experimental aircraft are. They're just, they just shove yeah. them all together and like, like uh, they wear spacesuits in, you know, in the cockpit of those ships and right. um, not even, not even the Phoenix did that. Like the, you know, the people in the Phoenix didn't wear spacesuits. <laughs> That's a good point. So yeah. it's like um, we must have advanced to that point where we wouldn't need atmospheric suits inside the ship. But then right. just to kind of bring it back, you know, maybe I don't know if it was probably just an homage, but, you know. It's it's interesting that that's that's kind of how we go back to glass domed helmets. You know what I mean inside of the uh, right. the NX ships. So I think it's um I, I guess because that was a next generation film, the idea that they would have to suit up and then get in the <laughs> ship, and of course they have to leave in a hurry. And the idea, like you know, it takes a while for astronauts to 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 prep, you know, to go out on those flights. So that wouldn't really work. And I guess we're just accustomed to you not needing anything if you're in a cockpit somewhere. You're, you're good to go. So here it, it was a case of trying to make it a callback to NASA, callback to the space program, callback to Air Force pilots. And and culturally, you know, you see it like in the locker room. Uh, well, well, first, the, the bar brawl between Archer and AG is great. And then you see them in the locker room and Archer's got the big cut across his nose and and then and then they put on the orange suits which are they're space suits but they also remind you of flight jackets as well and it was a, just a great way to connect the two and remind everyone that we're we're bridging the gap between where we are now and where we're going with Kirk's era and Picard's era and and but this is the origin of everything like what we did in the 60s you know what we did late 50s what we did in the 60s and the 70s and what we're even doing today and of course today we have a lot of of private work being done you know it's 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 an interesting development that's happened since the time enterprise was created and shot that this this idea of the government space agency leading the charge into manned spaceflight starting to give way to private enterprise doing it, uh, which it's, I haven't really thought very much about that until right now as we're talking about it, but it is an interesting development. Well, I, I can tell you exactly what happened, Chris. You see, Kirk went back in time um, pre-World War II and okay. he, he allowed Edith Keeler to die. And um, that, mm. that created an alternate universe where like presumably we should have had the eugenics wars already hasn't happened so uh okay that's why we're seeing the privatization of space travel um we're 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 separate now from the star trek universe but uh it was all kirk's fault essentially and it all hinges on edith keeler man she was one important woman she she really really was (laughs) (laughs) she really was but that makes sense and that's why there's no virgin galactic in the uh in the star trek universe. (laughs) exactly like you know where where can you can you spend a million dollars in the Star Trek universe to go into the upper atmosphere? You just you can't do it. <laughs> you can't do it. 
And you know, it was funny. One thing I wanted to mention too, when you were talking about uh, the the bridging of of now to then, one thing I don't think I've ever noticed, and I don't know if it's only in the in the the uh, this episode that we're talking about, or if it happens on All Star uh, Enterprise, which I've it's been a little while since I've actually watched the whole series, is Admiral Forrest has a tie. And I oh, was yeah. like, yeah. And I really like his, he's, he's got like a suit, a kind of a modernish suit, but it's still got the, the stripes down the shoulders and right, stuff. And I'm like, this right. is a sharp looking, I would wear that now. And he's got a tie on yeah. and I'm like, you know what? He looks like a professional military guy right now. Like he, like he would be in charge. And I'm like, we don't really get to see that. Not, not very much in Star Trek. Of course, occasionally we do, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's very very sharp and it's very naval. And I, I know I've been referring to the Air Force quite a bit um, as we're talking here. And of course, Starfleet is more modeled after the Navy, not the Air Force. And of course, the Navy does carry out uh, lots of flights as well. So I, I see Starfleet as sort of a merging of those two. Whereas the, um, the 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 development, the NX program itself, has much more of an Air Force feel to me. Uh, but but when you talk about the uniform there and the structure of the organization all this have a naval feel as well another parallel that i saw here are the because the problems they have you know the explosion when when robinson tries to to do the test flight and what's holding them back you know there were a lot of setbacks for nasa over the years there were a lot of accidents that took place and we lost a lot of astronauts to get us to where we are now and the we don't know how many test flights the NX program made of these NX Alpha, Beta, Delta, Gamma, all these different ships that they had. The the X fifteen flights that I mentioned earlier on with NASA between nineteen fifty nine and nineteen sixty eight, they did hundred and ninety nine test flights there. They had a few accidents. Now, if you keep in mind they did hundred and ninety nine flights, they only had a few accidents. But in November of nineteen sixty seven. Michael J. Adams was killed. Uh, that was X-15 Flight 191. And he went up 50.4 miles. And the U.S. definition of space is 50 miles. If you pass the 50-mile barrier, you're in space. And so Adams actually went up in an X-15 50.4 miles. On reentry, he was up there 266,000 feet. Uh, he encountered problems. He got the ship under control again, came down, but the ship ultimately broke up at 65,000 feet. That one in particular kind of reminds me of a little bit of what happened with A.G. Robinson in the in the episode First Flight. There were others. Um, there were crashes of aircraft like uh, Theodore Freeman outside of Ellington in uh, Houston, 1964. The original crew of Gemini 9A, they were all killed when they were trying to land T-38 at Lambert Field in St. Louis. That was in 1966 in February. And then, of course, the Apollo 1 crew, was they were all killed while they were rehearsing the launch sequence when there was an electrical fault that started a fire and it consumed the cockpit. That was January 1967. And then also Clifton Williams, Clifton C.C. Williams, he was killed as well in a T-38 in October of 1967. And he had been assigned to the backup crew of Apollo 9. And then he was most likely going to be the lunar module pilot for Apollo 12. And interestingly there, the we were talking about all these mission patches earlier that they have even in Enterprise for the missions and in first flight. The actual Apollo 12 mission patch has four stars on it. And there were three astronauts who went on the mission, Charles Conrad, Alan Bean and Richard Gordon. And Alan Bean actually was the lunar module pilot. But there's a fourth star on the patch, and it's for Williams, who died in this T-38 crash, which was, I thought, a nice way of commemorating that and the people who worked on developing the space program. And that's a feeling that I get also with what we see with all these different test pilots in first flight and the progression that humans go through to develop warp flight. Yeah. And of course, you know, this isn't even mentioning things like the two shuttles that exploded, uh, Challenger and Columbia. Right. Those all came much later. Yeah. Um, but it, it is one thing it, I, I get the sense like you do that. It, it's a lot like the air force because I was, when I, when they first took off in the NX alpha and he doesn't even have a co-pilot. I'm like, this seems 
reckless. This seems kind of silly. But if but if we're looking at it as, a, as an Air Force parallel, that totally makes sense. Because in a lot of these tests, you know, these were single people aircraft. And, and even if, like, he did technically have a seat, an empty seat next to him, which would make sense to bring someone along. Um, but, you know... So I was like, okay, that's that's fine, but um, and of course he survives his his accident um, in the episode, but it was just like um, it, it it is it's a reminder of the fact that progress costs something. Um, right. You know, we in order to do these things, it's it's probably going to hurt. And actually, I think that's a big part of the episode. The big a big moral of the episode is the fact that you know we can't just take take these you know these accidents and, and these issues that we have we we have to go and keep pushing forward you know we can't just stop yeah. you know failure is not an option we ha- we have to keep pushing forward right and i think it took something tragic like world war three and everything that happened in the aftermath of that in the star trek universe to push humans back to that because the the things i just mentioned these accidents February 1966, you know, November 1967, January 1967, December 1967, like all together. And I have to imagine that if you were around at that time and you're seeing all this stuff happening on the news, you're thinking like, this is really dangerous stuff that we're doing right here. But yet everyone pushed through and everyone was behind it and supported it. And we went to the moon. And I feel like today we would not be willing to accept those types of casualties in the name of progress and development of the program. You know, we have we have technologies right now that, you know, think of like plutonium power sources for for space probes, for example, where there's a huge aversion to using that stuff just because the potential that something could go wrong during a launch and and it might fall back to Earth. And we do more and more unmanned missions these days. And now there's the talk about sending humans to Mars sending humans back to the moon. Of course, the Chinese want to do it and they want to do it in short order. And Americans want to go to Mars, but it's going to be really dangerous again. And I, I'm not sure at the moment if we have it in us, really, if we have the stomach for it. You know, that's a really interesting topic. Um, I, I actually do. I hope I hope the Chinese get to the moon soon because that'll that'll light the fire under our, our American butts, I think. Uh, yeah. to, to get moving on our manned space program as well. Like, yeah. Um, and honestly, I, I, I tell myself this all the time. I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, even if, if they were taking volunteers for a one, a one way trip to Mars, I, I'd like to think I would have the courage to do it. Um, I, I kind of, you know, I, I, and I think that if this does happen in the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to like, you're right. Maybe like, as we are now, we're kind of not used to, seeing all these tragedies, but if we're actually going to push for this, it's going to happen again, just in the oh, same way happen. that it did in the sixties. Yeah. Like there are going to be yeah. accidents and there are going to be problems and people are going to die and, but they're going to die doing what they feel passionate about and what they care about. And, and it's kind of a Star Trek ideal, you know? Yeah. Well, I have to say, Daniel Prue, I think you are one of those few courageous humans that people turned to in the aftermath of destruction to bring the world back together. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I do what I can, uh, so. <laughs> well, one last topic I wanted to get your thoughts on before we wrap up the show here is the ship design itself. Now, you you are known around the network as the nacelle guy <laughs> and because you love your starships and you love your nacelles. What, do you, what did you think, just in terms of ship design, when we finally passed this whole NX program, and we built the actual NX ship itself. I don't know if I've ever really asked you this before, certainly not on this show, what you thought about the NX-01. Yeah, okay. Um, So technically speaking, from a nacelle perspective, um, the earlier ships by far have the largest nacelle to body ratios of any of the ships Um, because at the time, obviously, but like, you know, the body of the ship is maybe maybe one and a half times the nacelle length of the ship, like especially on the Phoenix uh-huh. or on the, on these early NX alphas and betas and stuff. Um, but what they did is unfortunately, and I wish they didn't do this. Um, I guess it makes sense in first contact, but they basically copied and pasted the original series nacelle. Um, they didn't really change much. I don't too much. You know what I'm saying? Um, 
so it doesn't leave a lot for for development or growth. I wish they maybe had right. something blockier or you know uglier or in some way that that we could see the progression because you know from from Zeph from Cochrane's time to to the Enterprise's time, uh, Kirk's Enterprise that's like two hundred years or something or or close to it. And essentially, we have the Phoenix and these NX Alphas and the the Enterprise NX01, which kind of all have the same essential. It's just like a copied and pasted Lego pieced nacelles that they just kind of attach. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I do like the overall design of the NX01. It makes a lot of sense for me. And I got really excited. Uh, I'm one of those guys that was like, when I saw the refit of the NX01, I was like, man, I wish yeah. we, I wish we got that. Cause that is an yeah. awesome looking ship design. It makes so much sense in the progression way to get from yeah. what we see in enterprise to what we see in the original series. One of the early episodes of warp five here, we have Doug Drexler on and, and we talk quite a bit about development of that um, refit, which is really interesting. And I think we would have probably gotten that in the fifth season, possibly. I think we would have certainly gotten it by the sixth season anyway to show the progression. But it's it's a it's a nice design. I um I, I guess I see what you're saying about the nacelles. I think that visually, for me anyway, they have the very it's very much a retro feel that fits in with the style of the rest of the ship, which may be why they they went that way. I, I, it's a little bit, the, the flat nature of the ship is, it takes a little bit of getting used to, but as I always say on here, I like it because it feels like something we would build. Yeah, it definitely does. It's a, it's a sharp looking ship for, for, especially like we've been talking today for, uh, an organization that went from testing those engines, actually testing engines, uh, inferior to those engines to building an entire starship within a 10 year period, a span period. And it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty impressive design. Well, to close out here, let's wrap up with the the NX series of ships. So we've gone through the NX program. They've developed the ship. Um, you know, actually, we didn't mention, we, we talked some about who's in charge here. We failed to mention that Captain Jeffries was the lead engineer on the NX program. And of course, that was a fantastic callback to the Jeffries tubes which um, is a little bit of retconning there, but it's uh, it's great that they actually put him into this program. So now now we have an in-universe explanation of why the Jeffries tubes are called the Jeffries tubes in the first place. And uh, conveniently, Trip Tucker, a lieutenant at the time, was also a key member of the engineering team. Yeah, and another callback that I... I mean, I know there's a ton of callbacks to First Contact in the episode, but they also mentioned New Berlin, Um in the episode when they leave orbit and uh, they leave the planet and he's like, Oh, new Berlin's going to pick us up in like six minutes or something. I'm like, Oh, Uh, Hey, that's the colony on the moon with the, you know, whatever. Um, But uh, no, I, I like, um, I like the fact that I I really liked actually that they introduced trip in this way. I thought it really made sense for, I did. I did too. Yeah. I, I, I've heard some, some fans don't like it. Like they feel like it's too convenient and, Maybe the relationship between Archer and Trip at that point is kind of odd that it would be what it is, but but I, I disagree. I mean, I think it really fills in the gaps of why they have the relationship that they have. Why Archer would insist on having Trip as his engineer on the NX01 when they go out, and also why Trip throughout the series you can tell how much he respects Archer and doesn't want to disappoint Archer, and I think that having him be part of the NX program and the way they met and the circumstances of it and all, it really explains a lot of that. So it works well. And it really, really makes sense for Archer's character to like him so much immediately because he talks back to the Vulcans. So it's right. Exactly. (laughs) So as we said at the beginning, the NX-01 launched in April of 2151. They had three more ships on the drawing board. The NX-02 Columbia launched in November of 2154. It was delayed a little bit as they made some refinements to it. Those were the only two ships that we got to see launched on the series. Now, the NX-03 and the NX-04, they were both, of course, on the drawing board. And if you turn to the literature and the continuation of Star Trek Enterprise in the literature, we find out in the novel Kobayashi Maru, which is by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangels, 
and also in Beneath the Raptor's Wings, which is also by Barton, and it's the first of the two-book Romulan War series that filled in what most of us wanted to see on the screen and, and we didn't get. And in those two books, we do get to see the NX-03 and the NX-04 built, and they are launched in August of 2155. The uh, stories actually take, well, Kobayashi Maru's story is set between May and July of 2155. Then in August, the NX-03 and the NX-04 are launched. The NX-03 is named the Challenger, and the NX-04 is named the Discovery. So they're following the same pattern of naming the ships as the U.S. Space Shuttle Program. Now, in the Mirror Universe, in In a Mirror Darkly, the Terran Empire, they have a ship called the ISS Avenger that has a registry number of NX-09. So they apparently kept building them, at least in the mirror universe. It's interesting. that I mean, it makes sense because they're, it looks like a sturdy design, <laughs> especially early on. You don't like we had here on, on Earth. Obviously, we had the, the space shuttles for 20 something years, maybe 30 years. I don't remember. Um, so it makes sense time, that yeah. the, their first, you know, first ship design would, would last a long time. You're not Maybe not a, quite as long as uh, the Excelsior class that we see later on in Star Trek, because that's used <laughs> those for Those are the workhorses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Those, those last forever. <laughs> those are like an old, old television. It just <laughs> never dies, you know. It's not true. like these new flat screens that, that die easily, apparently. <laughs> All right. Well, we've run through the whole uh, NX program, the development pretty thoroughly today, Daniel. I'm really glad that you could join me for that. Now, I know you've got to run your co your co-hosts over on Earl Grey are waiting for you to time travel back to the 24th century because you guys are about to record a show. So, but before I let you go, tell everyone where they can find you uh, both on the network and around the interwebs. Sure. But I, I just, I want you to understand that I don't have to time travel. I can just end the holodeck program. So, oh, that's true. I, I see. I didn't know I was a hologram. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not Moriarty. I, I don't know those things. Yeah. Well, it's under. It's understandable. I'm. Uh, I'm the chef's assistant. So, <laughs> you know. Um. Yeah. You, uh, you can find me every week. Um. On the network. On on the Old Gray Show, as we've talked about here. Um. Uh, we talk about all all about TNG with my co-hosts, uh, Darren and Philip, and you should definitely check it out. Um. This week we're talking the Prime Directive, so that's that should be interesting. And uh, if you want to get a hold of me personally, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is OneUpDan, and that is the number one, not the word. Excellent. And you can also find Daniel with me and other hosts from time to time on The Ready Room as well, uh, not only to talk about TNG, but other series as well. In fact, you were just with us talking about Voyager this past week. It's true. All right. Well, thanks so much for sitting in with me tonight, Daniel, and I hope to have you back again soon. Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion of the NX program today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing here on Trek FM this past week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Where no man has gone before, comic versus episode. They talk about how we just picked up this psychiatrist from uh, from Alderbon. Alde... Alde... Shoot. Alderaan. This is called Alderaan. Earl Grey. All good things. In a universe where Troy is dead, the Enterprise D lives on. That's all <laughs> I want to say. It's the only thing that matters. The Ready Room. Simple defense. Ducat recorded messages, obviously, for a lot of different um, scenarios. Isn't it funny <laughs> to think of him, like, you know, whatever, 10 years before this episode, yeah. like, you know, putting a day aside. It's like, I have to do, I have to sit in front of a camera <laughs> and just think of ways they could screw us. The orb. Till death do us part. His are, are, are very quizzical in nature. They, they're of the scientist. They're of the somebody who who is willing to accept, okay, where what is this reality? What's going on? She's just all like, tell me what to do right now. You know, like, she, right. She, there's nothing spiritual about her. To the journey! Voyager Season 4 Marathon. I was working full-time on top of being a full-time student, and I... Listen, I, d I don't want to hear your excuses, okay? I don't want to hear them. <laughs> like, life was happening, and... A great man once told me, if something's important to you, you make the time. Warp 5. Organians on Enterprise. Part of what this episode of Enterprise is about for me is it's the search for the Organian society to 
to find compassion again. Commentary: Trek stars. Cliff Bull and the X Files: Bad Blood. It's actually kind of odd because the audience can piece together the narrative flow better than, you know, their boss. That's because their boss didn't have the uh, brilliant direction of Cliff Bull to uh, observe. Literary treks. Greg Cox, no time like the past. The one thing I had to be very careful of, and this was another sort of potential minefield that I had to navigate, was nobody in Kirk's time knows who the Borg are. So she can't like, oh, hi, I'm seven of nine. I'm a former Borg. They don't know the Borg. She has to be careful not to tell them the Borg. And introducing Continuing Mission, our newest show all about fan series and independent productions. Star Trek continues with Doug Drexler. Everybody who does a Star Trek show in CG, the first thing they do is make the ship 947 feet long. Well, there's no way it's going to look the same because the ship that they shot on television wasn't 2,000 feet long. It was 11 feet long. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. You'll find them in a wide variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. So grab the shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And while you're there on iTunes, you know, if you love Warp 5, leave us a star rating and a written review. We do love to hear from you, and it does help other fans find the show as they search iTunes as well. So it only takes a minute, and uh, we like to hear what you're thinking about the show. If you'd like to send us other feedback, there are a number of ways for you to do that. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners. If social media is your thing, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you'll also find us on Twitter where we're tweeting away about Star Trek all the time under username trek.fm. And speaking of feedback and reviews, we got an iTunes review a few days ago from Dante Hopkins. And Dante said, Enterprise finally appreciated and gave us five stars in the U.S. store. And Dante wrote, I really enjoyed Enterprise in its first run. And listening to Chris and his guests talk about Enterprise inspired me to begin rewatching it. I rediscovered why I liked this show so much, and it's great to have a discussion of Enterprise highlighting what was great about this series. I really appreciate the format and look forward to each podcast. Thanks again, Chris. Well, Dante, thanks so much for that. I really am glad that you're enjoying the format. And as for discussions about what was great about Enterprise, you know, there is so much about this series to love. It may not have been what every Star Trek fan was looking for, when Voyager left the air. But I think people are going back now and they're starting to appreciate the show for what it is, for the great cast, the great characters. And, you know, it's a little bit different take on Star Trek and it's one that that I think is quite refreshing. So I'm always happy to talk about Enterprise and put a positive spin. And, you know, I'm not afraid to talk about some of the bad points of the show as well because every TV show has those. But uh, it's it's going to be positive here on Warp 5, and on Trek FM, and so I'm glad you're enjoying that. So uh, thanks for your review, Dante, and for everyone else, as I mentioned a moment ago, drop by iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Well, before Dan headed back off to rejoin the Earl Grey crew, he mentioned where you can find him on the network and online. If you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, I do quite a few shows. I do The Orb with Matthew Rushing, which is a lot like Warp 5, but we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. Matthew and I also do literary treks together. And on that show, we talk about Star Trek books and comics and interview authors. And uh, actually coming up for Enterprise fans, I believe we're going to record it next week. Christopher L. Bennett's second Rise of the Federation novel, Tower of Babel, is out. I'm reading it right now. I'm really enjoying it very, very much. And uh, we're going to be doing that on Literary Treks. So uh, stay tuned for that, and we'll let you know when the link is up. Also, I have an interview show called Matter Stream, where I talk to scientists and actors and creatives and writers and things about 
Star Trek, loosely related to Star Trek or inspired by Star Trek. It's not exactly a Star Trek show, but that's here on the network as well. And then I have another show called Continuing Mission, which is all about Star Trek fan series and independent productions. And that one very much is about Star Trek. So, you know, if you love Star Trek Continues, uh, Phase 2, looking forward to Axanar, Renegades, any of these things, be sure to check out that show as well. And I also host The Ready Room every week with other hosts from all around the network. Daniel is there with me sometimes as well. And we talk about Star Trek news and all five live-action Star Trek shows on that show. And we have an Enterprise episode coming up this coming week, so stay tuned for that. Before I let you go, I'd also like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show. That's Audible.com. Audible is the best source you'll find online to get audiobooks. They have over 150,000 titles for you to choose from. They have hundreds of new titles coming out every week. New releases come out in audio format. They also have lots of classics. Uh, they have other current bestsellers. They have lots of Star Trek books as well. Science, business, whatever you're looking for, you're going to find it at Audible. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. All you need to do is go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up and you can choose any book you want absolutely free. And there's nothing to lose because if you decide at the end of the trial that you don't want to stick with Audible, you get to keep that book. But if you're listening to podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks. And if you're already listening to them, but you're getting them through iTunes or in the bookstore on CD or, or however you get them, Audible is a really great way for you to get them as well. Actually, all the audiobooks that you get through iTunes are provided by Audible, but I love going directly through the Audible website myself. So uh, go check it out, audibletrial.com slash trekafilm, and by supporting Audible, you'll be helping us keep Warp 5 coming to you every week, and we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. We also wanted to invite you to check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation, if you like this jazz cover of Where My Heart Will Take Me that we use here on Warp 5, and I do, it's it's really a fantastic version, you're going to love Andrew's album because he has taken nine other themes and uh, musical pieces from Star Trek, and he's done light jazz renditions of them. It's a really great album. I listen to it all the time, and you can pick it up in iTunes or on Amazon, and uh, go check it out. And great stuff there by Andrew, and we really love having that theme here on the show. One more thing you can do to help us keep Warp 5 coming to you is to make a donation in the network. Now, our shows are free for you to download, but they're not free for us to produce. And if you go to trek.film slash donate, you'll find eight original alien illustrations by Tobu Ushi, and he does most of the artwork that you see on our website. You can get them as art prints or badges. There are different contribution levels for you to choose from as well. And your support helps us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring not only Warp 5, but all of our shows to you every week. So go check it out. Again, that's trek.film slash donate. And we really thank you for helping us keep the network going. Well, thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5.